Welcome to Unlearn to Learn, a podcast brought to you by the World Obesity Federation. I'm your host, Alexander. I'm the Education Manager at World Obesity, and in my role as Manager of Scope eLearning, I oversee the development of resources to improve the care and treatment of patients with obesity. In this series, I'll be speaking with some of the most experienced medical practitioners from all over the world. Across nine episodes, we'll be examining the prevention, treatment and care of obesity by busting myths and focusing on the science behind obesity treatment and management. Whether you're a medical student, a practitioner, or simply have an interest in obesity and public health, there's something to be learned here. So join us, let's get started. With the number of patients being diagnosed with obesity continuing to increase globally, and the rising severity of many of the cases, more impactful interventions to treat the disease have started to be implemented. This has included the use of medical devices, bariatric surgery, and pharmacotherapy. Despite intensive treatment plans in place, some patients are inherently more at risk of chronic obesity, whether it be due to internal genetics or psychosocial factors out of the patient's personal control. Behavioral modification and lifestyle adjustments are the first step in treating obesity. Whilst these are important in obesity treatment, it is often difficult to achieve or sustain the process of weight loss especially in the long term, through these alone. Pharmacotherapy has surfaced as an additional therapeutic approach to intensive lifestyle intervention, essentially bridging the gap between behaviour changes and more intensive treatments such as surgery. In this episode of Unlearn to Learn, we'll be delving into the world of pharmacotherapy. We'll be taking a closer look at what FDA-approved medicine is currently being used to treat obesity, as well as some of the benefits and risks associated with drug treatment. We'll debunk some common myths surrounding obesity medication before analysing the science behind it and examining the relationship and potential causality between multiple different drugs and the disease of obesity itself. With that being said, let's get into the episode. Today I'm joined by Dr Caroline Opovian, Co-Director for Weight Management and Wellness at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, which provides comprehensive multidisciplinary care for patients seeking weight loss. She is also a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Within her career, Dr. Apovian has held a position at the forefront of the weight management, health and nutrition fields and has distinguished herself as a leading researcher, treatment provider, educator and New York Times bestselling author. Dr. Apovian, it's truly a pleasure to have you with us on today's podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much, Alexander. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you so much for joining us. So to begin with, could you please just tell us a little bit about your work at Brigham Hospital and how you became interested in the pharmaceutical treatment of obesity? It's a long journey, but uh, what I do at Brigham and Women's is I co-direct the Center for Weight Management and Wellness. We have a comprehensive program and I lead the medical side under endocrinology. We also have a bariatric surgery arm and a bariatric endoscopy arm. So within the medical arm, we see patients who have obesity and eating disorders, and we, you know, treat these patients with uh, lifestyle, with medications that can help suppress appetite for the most part, and help the patient get to a better body weight The body has a set point, as uh, we've learned over the past 20 years, and people these days tend to 
defend a higher body weight in this environment, and we help them get to a better body weight. And we use lifestyle and exercise, behavior modification, medications, and then those who are eligible for bariatric surgery and a more aggressive intervention like bariatric surgery or bariatric endoscopy, we refer over to the other two arms. So that's what we do. We've been seeing many, many patients. I started this whole process at Boston University Medical Center, where I, I developed a program much like I have at the Brigham, and I, I was there for 20 years. And so throughout the time period where we were learning about obesity, we developed those kinds of programs at Boston University, and now I'm able to do this at the Brigham. Excellent. So you clearly take a very multifaceted approach to treating obesity. So what I'm interested to know is at what point does the pharmaceutical treatment of obesity become appropriate or necessary? That's a very good question. So the NIH guidelines, uh, National Institutes of Health guidelines, dictate that a pharmaceutical option for obesity is appropriate for patients with a BMI over 27 with at least one serious comorbidity. And what are those comorbidities? Diabetes, prediabetes, hypertension, sleep apnea, arthritis, GERD, re, you know, reflux. And so we can use these medications to help patients achieve a better body weight. And there are several medications that I talk about today, and we can talk about what might be appropriate for which patient. Well, that leads nicely onto my next question, which was going to be what medications are currently available for treating obesity? And I think it's important just to caveat that with obviously you're practicing in the USA. And so the medications you're talking about are approved in the USA. They might not necessarily be approved in other countries. But in terms of, in terms of your practice, what medications are available at the moment? Yes, uh, that's an important question, and it's very important to, you know, discuss it in the, with the caveat that we're in the United States and, and we have six approved medications for the treatment of obesity. So uh, approved in 1959 was fentermine, and it's uh, related medications, diethylpropion, but we really want to focus on fentermine. It's a uh, norepinephrine releasing agent. It suppresses appetite, very strongly so. Fentramine in combination with topiramate, which is an anti-seizure medication, can also be used to treat obesity. Topiramate alone really is off-label for the use of obesity, but small doses of each in combination is uh, brand and used for obesity treatment. There is also the combination of bupropion, which is an antidepressant, and naltrexone, which is an anti-addiction agent. Branded is used for the treatment of obesity as well. We also have two GLP-1 agonists. The first is liraglutide 3.0, which is a GLP-1 agonist, which is a uh, prescribed daily, a daily injection for the treatment of obesity. And then we also have the newest out, which is semaglutide 2.4, 
which is a weekly treatment of obesity. And notably, semaglutide, in a study that was published in the New England Journal, really made headlines because of the statistical analysis showing that in about 30% of patients given medication at the 2.4 dose, there was a 20% weight loss or greater. So 30% of patients had a 20% weight loss or greater at the end of one year, meaning that, you know, that kind of weight loss is really almost fully double the weight loss that we've seen with the other medications that I just described. We've been really changing the the treatment paradigm here in the United States for obesity treatment. And many, many patients who come in are eligible and seeking this treatment. But the other medications are certainly out there and available. We've been using those as well. Sometimes we use GLP-1s in combination with some of the other oral agents. So how do you decide which medication to prescribe to which patient? Or will it simply be a case moving forward that the majority will be prescribed semaglutide if it's the most efficacious? We certainly try at this point to prescribe our most efficacious drug. However, what we do know from studies is that there are non-responders for even a great drug such as semaglutide. So, you know, if you look at the waterfall plots in patients receiving each and every drug, and also (laughs) this is very true for bariatric surgery, there are patients who respond dramatically with, uh, you know, 20, 30% weight loss. And then there are patients who don't lose weight at all on the left side of the curve. And then on the right, there's dramatic weight losses. So we are not, right off the bat, when we see a patient, we don't know which drug is going to give the best response to that particular patient. So what we do is we, we choose the drug based on the patient's comorbidities, patient's drug list of drugs they're already on, the particular symptomatology of the patient. For example, I'll give you a a very easy example. We have a patient who has hypertension and mild coronary artery disease, and they're on a slew of medications for their blood pressure. That patient, we're not going to automatically right off the bat choose something like fentramine, because fentramine has some blood pressure and pulse side effects that may exacerbate their existing condition. If that patient also has uh, depression, for example, and is not on antidepressants and uh, has some cravings, we may want to consider bupropion naltrexone, even though bupropion does tend to cause elevations in blood pressure, that might be a good drug combination for that patient. I'm trying to avoid saying that everybody should get semaglutide because the reality is that semaglutide or liraglutide is going to be a great drug for most patients simply because of cardiovascular mortality data that shows tremendous advantages for these drugs 
in the cardiovascular world and in the renal world. And so we are really realizing that these drugs may convey uh, mortality benefit in addition to weight loss. So these drugs are probably going to be the number one choice for most people. Okay, well, that sounds really promising. So once a patient has a drug that seems to be working for them, how long do they need to be taking it for? Is it something that can be done on a short-term basis or does it have to be long-term? Obesity is a disease. It's a chronic relapsing condition. So much like any other disease, such as diabetes and hypertension, we don't talk about how long do I have to be on this drug because we know that we should consider obesity just like we do any other disease. Of course, we mean to continue these drugs indefinitely. And that is another paradigm shift. When we only had fentramine around for obesity treatment years ago now, and, you know, we had dexfenfluramine and some of these other agents that have so many side effects. We did talk about, gee, how long do I have to be on this drug? Because fentramine can cause insomnia and elevations in blood pressure and anxiety. And then it was, you know, and then we, we didn't realize that obesity was such a relapsing disease. And of course, you know, fentramine was approved by the FDA in 1959 for only three months, and it's still that way today. But now that we know that we recognize that obesity is a disease, and we have medications that are much safer to use, we now know that these drugs should be used indefinitely. And which drugs are we talking about that should be used indefinitely? Well, it's going to be semaglutide, liraglutide, and not as much fentramine to pyramate. Bupropion naltrexone is a drug combination that, uh, yes, we can use indefinitely, but it doesn't have the dramatic efficacy in most patients that the GLP-1s have. I will say that in certain patients with binge eating disorder and intense cravings and alcohol abuse, along with this binge eating disorder, it's a particular syndrome, that this combination of bupropion and naltrexone can be very, very dramatic and improve the obesity and also the other addictive behaviors. Okay, so the profile of the patient very much informs the choice of medication used. Yes, it does. Very much does. You have to look at the entire patient profile, medications used, comorbidities, lifestyle, symptomatology, age of the patient is very relevant as well, because as patients get older, they have more trouble sleeping. They're more sensitive to our older agents with blood pressure and pulse effects, anxiety, and all of those conditions. And so one thing I will say is that, you know, GLP-1 agonists are agonists of a naturally occurring hormone. So this is the first time that we have 
something that's used that is a naturally occurring hormone that the gut makes to, that the gut secretes to induce satiety. Okay, interesting. So you discussed earlier the fact that you offer a very holistic approach to obesity management, so including, for example, lifestyle interventions and surgery. I'm interested to know with regard to lifestyle interventions, is there a point at which you decide that actually these lifestyle interventions are not sufficiently efficacious in and of themselves and that medication is necessary? Or is it simply a case of if this patient is at or above a certain BMI, that's when we decide that the medication is necessary? Well, that's sort of a black and white way of looking at it. Certainly, we know that if you have a BMI over 30 or over 27 with a condition, that you have you you most likely have obesity as the chronic relapsing condition. And it prompts us to more likely choose a medication in addition to lifestyle. But there's no protocol that indicates that you must. It is suggested that you consider a medication. Certainly, uh, patients with a BMI over 25, which is the beginning of the cutoff point for overweight, should get a lifestyle intervention to include healthy eating patterns, daily physical activity, and behavioral intervention to get them to a, a more healthy body weight. We may consider a medication for patients with a BMI of 26.5 who already have prediabetes, for example. There's no definite rule that says you cannot. And it may be indicated, especially if you see that the patient over the past 10 years has been slowly gaining weight. You don't want until they get to a BMI of 30 to intervene. So we don't have prescriptive guidelines in the United States or worldwide that say you must prescribe an anti-obesity medication for anybody with a BMI over 30. We do certainly have prescriptive guidelines for diabetes and for hypertension. After a period of time, of course, where you try total lifestyle change, TLC. So, you know, if a patient has prediabetes and just going over the border into diabetes, you can try lifestyle for three to six months. But after that, you've got to intervene with metformin and a GLP-1 prescriptive. That's not true in the case of obesity yet. We are developing prescriptive guidelines, hopefully soon, to indicate that anyone with a BMI over 30, in addition to diet and exercise, after a period of time for which you did attempt to help the patient with lifestyle change, then you must prescribe and anti-obesity medication. That's not true as of right now. I hope that uh, it, it's a little complicated because, you know, we need to fully embrace obesity as the chronic relapsing disease that it is. And once we do, we will know that doctors and healthcare providers must use all of the interventions that we have available. So is it the case that because obesity hasn't been universally recognized as a disease as of yet, 
that we don't have prescriptive rules in the way that we do for, for example, diabetes and hypertension? I would say that we are now realizing, we do realize and recognize obesity to be the chronic relapsing disease that it is. However, the rest of the infrastructure that allow for doctors and healthcare providers to prescribe what is needed has not been put into place. What do I mean by that? It takes a team of expert authors to write prescriptive guidelines. Also requires a team of educators, academia, government, and payers to realize that the novel medications need to be universally covered under insurances. That doesn't happen overnight. And so, for example, if we see tomorrow develop a prescriptive guideline that says, well, if you have a patient with a BMI over 30, you must prescribe an anti-obesity medication. And the number one, you know, the best drug is a GLP-1 agonist, which certainly we think it is. And the patient has, you know, a insurance that where obesity medications aren't covered, which is still the truth today, that patient is not going to be able to afford a very large bill per month to take that medication. So in the United States, and I'm just going to speak about the United States, our primary care providers in their office practices are not equipped to suddenly treat every single patient who comes in with a BMI over 80. They don't have the bandwidth in terms of the medical staff, the dietitians needed, the psychologists, the exercise specialists, the coaches that are needed to assist that doctor to make dietary exercise recommendations for that patient and to help that doctor. You know, the doctor certainly can buy a loan decide that there are certain medications that are exacerbating the weight gain, such as an antidepressant uh, or an antipsychotic agent, such as olanzapine, that can cause 50 to 100 pound weight gains in a year. But that doctor needs to then talk to the psychiatrist who gave the patient that medication to see if they add on something to mitigate that weight gain. And so that doctor needs more than 15 minutes per patient to do all this. And they need coaches and many more, a team approach, a team approach for obesity treatment in every single primary care office. Why? Because 40% of Americans have obesity. Think about that. There are no prescriptive guidelines. Therefore, if you walk into a doctor's office and you have a BMI of 50, and you have diabetes, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia, that doctor will know that they must treat the diabetes, they must treat the hypertension, they must treat the lipid dysfunction, but the patient can walk out the door and the doctor does not have to address the BMI of 50. Why? Because we don't have prescriptive guidelines. That's what needs to change.
Okay, so there needs to be an awful lot of infrastructural changes before we can actually introduce prescriptive guidelines for obesity. I predict that we're going to be able to write prescriptive guidelines in the next few years before we can really turn everything else around, right? Because to write prescriptive guidelines, all you need is a group of experts sitting around the table at the NIH, and you write the prescriptive guidelines, and they get published, and then everything else has to fall into place. So what's going to happen first? That is still not clear, but I think it's easier to get the prescriptive guidelines done. And then because if we suddenly get uh, insurers to cover these medications, which is slowly happening, I have to say, 40% of the population is going to be eligible for one of these. So in order to have that happen, the payers and the government have to realize that put money up front to treat the obesity is going to save billions of dollars down the line because we're going to prevent type 2 diabetes and prevent heart disease and prevent knee and hip arthritis and prevent all of the other comorbidities. And so we're going to see, reap the benefits of treatment way down the line. But that involves visionary thought and someone just has to do it (laughs) and spend the money up front. I suppose it goes back to the importance then of recognizing obesity as a disease. And it just shows that in so doing, you will actually improve so many other areas of healthcare. You will actually preventatively help to treat diabetes and prevent hypertension, et cetera. Yes, we'll have such a a better long-term option for our, you know, quite frankly, our children and adolescents growing up today who have obesity themselves. And that leads to the next big question is what caused the increase in prevalence of obesity? And that's great that we are poised to prevent the consequences of obesity as long as we can utilize medications, diet, exercise, surgery, endoscopic procedures earlier. But what about prevention of the obesity in the first place? And that's going to require a bigger look into our food supply, our environment that is allowing for less physical activity. But I think most experts agree that it looks as if it's our food supply that is perhaps the culprit, although nothing's been really proven. But that's a, a you know probably another discussion and another look at how we can worldwide feed the billions of people on this planet healthier food so that we're not feeding the world white bread and sugar because it's cheap and high in calories. That's another discussion. That may have caused the entire obesity epidemic. I mean, on the subject of the causes of obesity, you mentioned earlier that certain other medications for other conditions, such as antipsychotic medications, can actually lead to weight gain. Um, To what extent is that a problem? And what advice would you impart to healthcare professionals who are 
prescribing medications that may cause weight gain, especially in the case of patients who are already living with overweight or obesity? It's a very good question. About 30% of patients living with obesity in the United States are on some kind of medication that has exacerbated or even caused that obesity in the first place. And we're talking about patients who certainly have depression and a need of medications for antipsychotic purposes, but also patients who who have hypertension. For example, beta blockers also can exacerbate weight gain. Beta blockers such as propranolol and mecarvedilol. Antihistamines like Benadryl can cause weight gain. Patients who have allergies or need Benadryl to sleep, there are steroids that can cause weight gain. Even patients with type 2 diabetes who are inadvertently given insulin and too early on in their disease, when they should have been placed on metformin and GLP-1s, this can exacerbate weight gain in a patient who already has overweight, obesity, and type 2 diabetes. If you suddenly place a patient, certainly with a high hemoglobin A1c on insulin, then they're going to gain weight. And that patient should be treated with diet, exercise, and a GLP-1 and metformin first to try and reverse the type 2 diabetes and therefore help the patient also lose weight instead of the opposite. So there are many, for many disorders, there are uh, drugs that can exacerbate obesity and make everything worse. And so my advice for primary care providers, other healthcare providers, is to look at when you have a patient come in with a BMI over 30, look at the med list and ask about when the patient was prescribed this medication. And more often than not, you will find that that medication exacerbated the weight gain. And you can think about medications that can be substituted for those medications. The sleep medications can also cause this. Many patients in the United States have sleep issues and are on Ambien and Amitriptyline and Benadryl. This can also uh, cause difficulties uh, with weight. And so for those patients, look for undiagnosed sleep apnea and other sleep problems and mitigate the automatic prescription for Ambien, for example, before you really look for the cause of that uh, sleep problem. The other big class of medications that is really under-recognized that can cause trouble is are the benzodiazepines, you know, for anxiety. And a lot of patients use these medications to get to sleep. They're very, very addicting. They can promote weight gain by the loss of the urge to be more physically active. Okay, so there's a lot to consider there. Okay, so finally then, from a scientific perspective, why is pharmacotherapy for obesity necessary in the first place? Why can't it simply be treated with a combination of diet and exercise? That's a great question. So first of all, are there people out there who have a BMI of 30 or even higher? And can they lose weight, first of all, with diet and exercise? And more importantly, can they keep it off? 
there is a cadre of patients out there that can do that. And we know this because of the National Weight Control Registry that has been published numerous times, and we are creating a worldwide registry of patients who've lost at least 50 pounds and kept it off for at least five years. And we know what they have in common. We now have a registry that has documented there are 10,000 patients out there that we know of. There are many more, of course, that can do this. And what do they have in common? They are vigilant. They are always thinking about what they're going to eat for their next meal. They control their calories to about 1,400 calories a day. They eat breakfast every morning. They weigh themselves every day or at least weekly. They exercise 2,500 calories worth per week. And in other words, they're always thinking about how to keep the weight off. And why is that? Why do they have to be so vigilant? It's because your body weight is tightly regulated by the energy regulation system in the brain, in the hypothalamus. And we know this because in 1994, leptin was discovered. Leptin is a hormone that goes to the brain and affects appetite, satiety, and resting energy expenditure. It protects your fat stores. When less leptin is secreted, the brain thinks you're starving. And so when you lose weight by diet and exercise, there's less body fat because you're losing fat and less leptin comes from fat tissue. And I'm just talking about one hormone here, but this is the major hormone, but there are many others that then are secreted, go to the brain and make you feel hungry. There are other hormones that come from the gut that also make you feel hungry and some that make you feel full. I'm talking in very simple terms here. And so the reason why we often need medications for obesity is to counteract these hormones and produce satiety and appetite suppression. They're counteracting the hormones that try and get the body to regain the weight. And we know body weight is tightly regulated. So the question is, why are we all defending a higher body weight set point in this environment? That's the million dollar question. There's research out there that suggests that the macronutrient content and the calories in the food that we are eating is creating a dysfunction so that we are prompted to eat more and store more fat. And so this is really epigenetics. This is really our bodies interacting with our environment, noticing that there's more food around, higher in calorie content, more appealing, more palatable because it's high in sugar and fat. And then somehow our body's regulation system is making us eat more of it. And that's Really, the only way we can really discuss it at this point, we're not really sure what is it in the body that switched on or off. There must be some kind of a gene 
that is switched on to think, okay, we got to eat this now because if we don't eat it now, it's going to go away. So that's just my simple thought about how our genes are the same genes that we had in Paleolithic times where there was food, you know, we were prompted to get it, eat it, and eat a lot of it so that we stored fat for the leaner times. And we don't have leaner times now. We're just providing us with very high fat, high sugar foods that are called ultra-processed foods, and they're very palatable, and somehow we eat too much of it beyond what we need to maintain our current body weight. That's really fascinating. And that's something we're going to explore more in our next episode when we'll be looking at the genetic basis of obesity. I think at that point, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. So Dr. Apovian, thank you once again for joining us and for sharing all of your knowledge and experience. It's really been invaluable information and your insight is very much appreciated. So thank you. It's been great speaking to you and speaking about this topic that is so upfront and on all of our minds. So thank you, Alexander, for this. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. I've been Alexander French, Education Manager at the World Obesity Federation, and this has been the Unlearn to Learn podcast. On the next episode, we'll be joined by Professor Sadaf Faruqi, where, as I mentioned, we're going to be exploring the genetics of obesity in what will be our final episode of the series. So we'll see you next time. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.